Great to be here with you. Thank you so much for the invitation. Thank you so much for the welcome. It's been great to get to know, uh, meet many of you. Um, yeah, it's been, it's been great to be able to be here with you all. Looking forward to uh, being able to open the word with you and to worship with you. Um, I think of local churches like little embassies of heaven. And so it's nice to kind of be able to pop into a new one and see so much that is new and different and yet so much of it is the same, isn't it? Because we are all citizens of the same country. We are in a, a foreign land. We are not at home, um, but we can still gather together. So I'm really glad that we're getting to gather with you this morning. Uh, we are going to be in Genesis chapter 2. It's on page 2 if you're using the Bible uh, under the seat in front of you. And as we prepare to open God's word, let's go to him in prayer and ask that he might open our eyes so that we might see what is right in front of us. Would you pray with me? Father, we have heard many different words this week. Lord, we have heard words that have failed. We have heard words that deceived. We have heard words that have changed. And Lord, we've gathered here this morning in order that we might hear a word that does not fail and that does not change. So Lord, we ask now by your spirit that you would be near to us, that you would open our ears and our eyes and our hearts so that we might hear you speak to us. This is the word that we need. We pray that you would speak it now. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, this morning I want to talk to us uh, about the idea of purpose. Purpose is something that we all want in life, isn't it? Um, we usually admire people greatly who it's really clear that they have lived life with purpose. Right, Everything that they've done has just been very intentional. Um, when we think of someone wasting their life, what do we kind of often think of? Maybe you can think back to a period of your life and you'd say, I really wasted those years. And what we often mean by that is, I don't really have anything to show for it. I, I, maybe I wasn't aiming at anything and I hit it. Uh, I, nothing to show for those years. We can feel sad about that, right? What we typically mean when we, we think of uh, living with purpose, we often think of it in terms of work, right? We we exert time, our effort, our thought, our energy, and then we receive something back for that effort that we exerted, right? Sometimes that's a paycheck, but not always. Sometimes we get a different kind of uh, purpose in the work that we set about doing. And I think this is something that is just ingrained in human nature. I think we all recognize it. We see it in ourselves. We see it in others. I want to suggest to you that the reason it is ingrained in human nature is because God put it there. That God is the one who actually tells us that we have purpose. And that's actually a part of what we find at the beginning of Genesis in our passage this morning. The Bible tells us not only that God has created mankind in his own image, the Bible also tells us why. He tells us the purpose for which God has created us. So in 
The chapter before ours, chapter 1, in verse 27, we're told that God created man, male and female, in his own image. And in that very next verse, we get the purpose, two tasks or two jobs that mankind was created to fulfill, to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, and to take dominion and subdue the earth. And in those two tasks or jobs given to mankind, we find humanity's purpose. So in our passage this morning, in chapter 2, verses 4 through 14, we're going to focus on that purpose or task that God has created us for. And this is a task, a purpose that is humanity-wide and history-long. Not only has God given us a purpose to fulfill, He has also provided everything that we need in order to fulfill this purpose that he's given us. So we're going to walk through our verses in two parts. Verses 4 through 9, man placed in a garden. And verses 10 through 14, the garden's place in the world. Man placed in a garden, and the garden's place in the world. So look with me first at verses 4 through 9. Man placed in a garden. Verse 4 kind of gives us sort of another introduction. Um, We're we're looking at the creation of the heavens and the earth. And here in chapter 2, we are specifically zooming in on the creation of mankind and his purpose. Now, where am I getting that from? Well, um, I think we're meant to see a parallel between the, the work that God accomplished in creation and the work that man was created as God's image to accomplish. So if you recall chapter 1, verse 2, the earth was formless and void, which set the stage for God's creative work. He was going to form what was formless, and he would fill what was void or empty. So he, he formed or ordered creation, right? He separated light from darkness, land from sea. And then he filled the creation with all kinds of animals, and of course, people. So God's work of forming and filling, I think then gets echoed in the creaturely tasks given to mankind. Man is to form the earth that God created by subduing it, by taking dominion. And mankind is supposed to fill the earth by multiplying and being fruitful through procreation. So even in the jobs God has given us, I think we're, we're imaging him. We image him and reflect him in creaturely ways, the, the very things that he's done first. God formed and filled the creation and mankind created in his image, now in, in our own creaturely ways, also form and fill the creation. Okay, look at verses five and six. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, For the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. These verses are describing what we might call a problem, something that needs to be addressed. And these verses give us two reasons or explanations for why why the problem's there. The problem, we're told, is that the land's not producing, right? not sprouting as it should. And the first reason we're given is that it hadn't rained yet. 
The land isn't getting the water it needs. Now there's something going on here with the mist. Water is springing up from the ground in some way. But the text is, is being really clear that, that that is not adequate to address the, the needs that the ground is needed to actually be having these, the bushes sprout and, and, and grow up. So the, there's a problem of water. The second problem, the second reason the text gives us for, for why this uh, problem is, is happening is that there isn't a man to work the ground. So <clears throat> this is the problem our text is going to answer. The land is unformed, it's wild, it's uncultivated, it's not fruitful. And the text says we need two things. The land needs water, and the land needs a man to work the ground. And so God is going to provide everything his creation needs. So first in verse 7, we see he creates man. Now verse 5 said there was no man to work the ground, and so here God now creates man. Here's a man. And we already know what his purpose is, right? It's to work the ground. So if man's purpose for which he's been created is to work the ground, does God then you know, kick him out into the wilderness and say, start making things grow? I mean, isn't that his job? This is his purpose, right? Go work the ground. Subdue and take dominion of the earth. Form it. Cultivate it, get those plants in the field sprouting. Christian, I think it's so important for us to see that from the very beginning to the very end, God never tasks his people and then tells them, and go figure out on your own how to do it. He has never done that, and he never will do that. God not only uh, has not only, God has not required anything of you that he has not also told you how to do it and given you everything you need to be able to do it. This is exactly what we see here. Man is created for the purpose of working the ground, right? To cultivate, take dominion of the earth, but God does it first. Look at verse 8. God plants a garden and places the man in it. Which means, first of all, that God just provides for all of man's needs. Man doesn't need to scratch an existence for himself out of the dry dust. He has all the food that he could need, and he lives in a place of pristine, cultivated beauty. So human life at the first was not solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. God not only provides for man's needs in the garden, but he's also showing man how to fulfill the task he's given him. So think of the garden like this. This is God's prototype. It's a it's an example of the finished product. This is what creation cultivated looks like. The garden shows the man what he's working towards as he subdues and takes dominion of the earth. In verse 9, right, so the creation, the problem with the creation, there's no plants sprouting, right? But in verse 9 in the garden, every kind of plant is sprouting. 
So what needs to happen out there, God has already made happen in the garden. So Adam knows exactly what his goal is, what he's supposed to do out there, because God has already done it in here. He's given him a model to follow. So God does not just create man and drop him in the wilderness and say, take dominion. I mean, how would Adam even supposed to figure out what that means? What does dominion mean? How, how do I do that? No, God has not merely given man the command of what he must do. He's shown him exactly how to do it. So Adam was a gardener, right? But God was the first gardener. God was the first gardener. And he has created man in his image and likeness. So what man is supposed to do out in in the world is just to imitate and image what he's already seen God do in here. And God still does this kind of instruction for us today in his word. So God has not just given us commands of how to cultivate your family or how to build up the church or how to make disciples of all nations. God doesn't just say, here's what you're supposed to do. Now, figure out how you're going to do it. God always tells us how. And we can actually point to another example of this right here in Genesis chapter 2. So we're only looking at 4 through 14. In our passage, we're focusing really on just the command that God gave to subdue and take dominion of the earth. But if we kept going, the rest of chapter 2, in verses 18 through 25, it addresses that other command to be fruitful and multiply. And these passages are really in parallel with one another. They both kind of follow the same structure. They both begin with a kind of problem, right? So in our passage, the plants of the field aren't producing. And in that passage, the problem is man's alone. And in both cases, God remedies the problem in the first by creating man to work the ground, and in the second by creating woman so that man and woman can be together. And in both passages also, God gives mankind a pattern to follow. He shows them how to fulfill their God-given tasks as his image bearers. So in our passage, the pattern is the garden. This is what dominion looks like. This is how to cultivate the earth and make it fruitful. In verses 18 through 25, God institutes marriage as the pattern for how mankind is to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. If you look at verse 24, we see explicit pattern language, right? After Moses describes this first marriage of Adam and Eve, he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This is a pattern to be followed. So God has not kicked humanity out into the wilderness of ignorance and self-determination. And, and told us just to, to figure out for ourselves things like sexuality, procreation, or child-rearing. No, he's commanded us to be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth, not just in any old way we can come up with. He specifically told us how, hasn't he? He's given us a pattern to follow. We see the same thing in the New Testament as well. You don't have to turn there, but in Ephesians 4, God tells us to build up the church. And that as Christians, we're actually to help one another grow to be more like Jesus. So if you're a Christian here today, that's actually a command that Jesus gives to you. Jesus holds you responsible 
for the building up into Christ-likeness of your fellow church members? Do, do you know how to do that? Do you, do you think you're supposed to figure out how to do it on your own? Thankfully, no. Thankfully, no. God tells us what to do. And sometimes it sounds like a big job, doesn't it? But he also tells us how to do it. Ephesians 4 says, we do this by speaking the truth in love to one another. This is the pattern. In the Great Commission, Jesus tells his followers to make disciples of all nations. What if that had been all that he'd said, right? Make disciples of all nations, and then he ascends to heaven. Aren't you glad that he said more than that, right? What's the more that he says? The more that he says is how to do it, how to do it. It's by baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. Okay, now, now we know how to obey the commands that Jesus has given. If you, if you, if you read your Bible with this, with this eye, you'll see this is always what happens. God does not ask his people to be innovative or creative or to make stuff up as we go along. He just wants us to follow him. Now, something else we need to notice in these verses. Verse 8. The garden is actually a place that is distinct from the place called Eden. Do you see that? It says Eden is a place, and that is where God plants this garden. So Eden is not just the name of the garden. Eden is a place that now has a garden. So then what is Eden? Well, Eden is understood in later scripture as, as, as a reference to God's dwelling place. So in Ezekiel, Eden is referred to as the mountain of God. And in the ancient world, if you think about this, where did kings build gardens? Right outside their palaces. So God is, is the king over all of the earth. And he plants this garden at the place where he dwells. And he says, that's where I want man to dwell too. So this garden has been made for man, not just for food and enjoyment, but also as a model of cultivation for man to follow in his task of subduing the earth. But even more than that, the garden was meant to be a place where man might meet with and commune and dwell with God. Genesis 3 is going to tell us that God would walk in this garden in the cool of the evening. So if that is the purpose of this garden, I think that affects then how we have to understand mankind's purpose of dominion, right? So if here at the beginning of history, the world is, we could say, wild and uncultivated, and there's only this, this one garden that God has planted, man's purpose is to go out into all of the world and subdue it. He's to bring that cultivation of God's garden into the rest of the world to cultivate the earth so that the whole world comes to actually reflect this garden that God has planted. So then at the, at the end of history, when man's task is completed, what we would expect is that the whole earth will be made like the Garden of Eden. And that's actually the imagery that the prophets, like Isaiah, used to describe 
the good ending that the world is moving towards. The earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. And man will again dwell with God. So this is the goal of all of creation that all of history is moving towards. So God's desire is not merely just to have one set apart place where God and man commune. He wants the entire earth to be like this garden. And he's entrusted that task to mankind. Let's look now at verses 10 through 14, where we see the garden's place in the world. So in these verses, we read about four rivers, two of them that are known to us, the Tigris and the Euphrates, and two that are unknown, the Pishon Gihon. And it actually seems like these rivers were probably unknown in Moses' day as well. Moses is the one who wrote the first five books of the Old Testament. That's why he's not in the story, but that's why I keep talking about him. He wrote it for us. It seems like these rivers were unknown when he was writing this as well because he gives a lot more descriptions about those two rivers as though his original readers would have been helped by more geographical, contextual information about where those rivers had been. What is the point of talking about these four rivers? Many have have taken these verses as clues to try and kind of figure out geographically where the garden really was. You know, like it was probably somewhere in modern day Iraq. I think this would be an amazing premise for another Indiana Jones movie. So like, you know, someone figures out where those two unknown rivers really were. Right, And it turns out that the Nazis are digging in the wrong place. And so Indiana grabs his hat and goes out in search of the lost garden of God. Right? So let's be clear on two things. Number one, I would definitely watch that movie. It sounds amazing. But number two, I don't really think that has anything to do with what these verses are trying to tell us. The point of these verses is to show us, I think, the garden's place in the world, but not in terms of latitude and longitude. Rather, in terms of the garden's intermediary place between God's presence in Eden and the ends of the earth. Now, let's remember, what is the problem being addressed in our passage? The plants of the field aren't able to grow and produce. And what were the two things that we needed? We need water and we need a man to work the ground. Well, so God's created a man now. He's told him to subdue and take dominion of the earth. He's shown him exactly how to do it by first planting a garden himself for man to dwell in and learn from and to imitate him as he goes out into the world to image his creator by cultivating the earth. But does man really have within himself the power, the capacity to make life spring up out of the dry ground? If man is going to cultivate the earth, if he's going to make life spring up from the ground, if he's going to make the wilderness like the Garden of Eden, he's going to need water, isn't he? Here in verses 10 through 14, we see that God himself is providing the other thing we need. 
God himself is providing the life-giving water that is needed to form and cultivate the earth. Now, we we already saw the text made a distinction between Eden and the garden, right? Well, here's why that matters. What is the source of this river of life? What does it flow out of? It flows out of Eden. It flows out of God's own presence. And where does it flow to? It flows out of Eden into the garden. So again, we see these two places are, the text is treating them as distinct places. Eden is the source of the river. The garden is the destination. The river waters the garden, which is why plants of every kind are sprouting and bearing fruit in the garden. The garden is sustained by and given life from this river. But then what happens to this river that flows from Eden into the garden? What happens? From the garden, that one river splits into four. And I I just think we're supposed to hear this and think in terms of four rivers flowing to the four corners of the earth. It's just spreading out and going everywhere. The river of life that streams from God's presence flows first into the garden and then from the garden out to the ends of the earth. So where is the garden of Eden is the right question that we should ask. But the text answers the question by telling us that the garden is the point of contact, we could say, between the life-giving power of God's presence in Eden and the ends of the earth that are in desperate need of God's life-giving power. The garden is the, the distribution hub from which life and blessing flows from God the creator to fill the whole earth. God has tasked man with taking dominion of the whole earth and making it like the Garden of Eden. If man's gonna do that job, he's gonna need water. And so God provides a river of life from his own presence so that the same water that brings life to this garden, God means to bring that same life to the whole world. So Adam's not just given a pattern to follow. God also provides the life-giving power that flows from God's own presence that is needed to cultivate the earth. Now, am I reading way too much into this? Am I spiritualizing this text in a way that is unwarranted? I want you to turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 47. If you're using the Bible into the chair in front of you, it's on page 734. Ezekiel 47. (coughs) We want to let Scripture interpret Scripture. So the Bible actually tells us how to read the Bible. So in Ezekiel's days, one one of the prophets, the temple in Jerusalem had already been destroyed. But Ezekiel gets this vision of a new temple that will be restored in the last day. And this new temple is just unrealistically gargantuan right? We might even say it's cosmic in scope. But I want us to look at chapter 47, verse 1. What is coming out of this temple? Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple towards the east, for the temple faced east. 
The water is flowing down from below the south end of the threshold of the temple, south of the altar. So water is flowing out of God's presence in the temple. Verse 5 says, it becomes a river. And where does this river go? And what does it do when it gets there? Look at verses 8 and 9. He said to me, this water flows towards the eastern regions and goes down into the Arabah and enters the sea. Water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. And wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live. And there will be very many fish, for this water goes there, that the waters of the sea might become fresh. So everything will live where the river goes. Look at verse 12. On the banks, on both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither nor their fruit fail. They will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. Now that verse might make some of us think about the very end of the book in Revelation. Flip to the very end real quick. Revelation 20, 22. It's the very last chapter in the whole Bible. <coughs> Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 and 2. John is just taking imagery right out of Ezekiel to help us understand. The angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from where? From the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street in the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. So, when we read Genesis 2, in light of the rest of Scripture, I think we see clearly that these rivers are not about Indiana Jones. They are about what God is going to do for his whole creation across the span of all of history. God is going to bring life and blessing and fruitfulness and healing to the nations. If the river flowing out of God's own presence at the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis 2 is fulfilled in this river flowing out of God's presence at the very end of the Bible in Revelation 22, then that not only helps us see the unity of the whole Bible from beginning to end, but this also helps us more specifically identify the purpose for which God created you. It has always been God's purpose to bring his blessing to the ends of the earth by means of man and the river of life that flows from his own presence. Now, of course, we know the entrance of sin messed things up, right? That's, that's, that's a whole chapter away. That's Genesis 3. Sin has messed things up, but we also need to understand sin has not canceled God's plan as though God's purposes could fail. God's purposes are still on. God's purposes in Genesis 2 are still on. And we know that because of Revelation 22, right? It happens. A lot happens in between, doesn't it? Adam failed. Adam 
did not make the rest of the world look like the Garden of Eden, did he? No. Adam's sin got him barred from the garden. He couldn't get back in. This is why God sent his eternal son to become man. To become the second Adam. Jesus came as as the second Adam to succeed where the first Adam had failed. And when we say that Jesus as the second Adam succeeded where the first Adam failed, we don't just mean that he didn't sin. I mean, Adam's sin disqualified him from completing his God-given task. Jesus' sinlessness, therefore, qualifies him to complete the task that Adam couldn't do. So when we say that Jesus succeeded where Adam failed, we don't just mean that Jesus wasn't disqualified by his sin. That's true. But we're also saying that because he was truly man and because he was sinless, he's actually accomplished the task that God had given mankind to fulfill. So this is what the prophets are talking about. Like in Isaiah says, he will make her wilderness like Eden, her deserts like the garden of the Lord. This is the hope that the Old Testament prophets hold out for what we're looking for. Because of sin, the world is not merely wild and uncultivated, is it? It's fallen, corrupt, and dead. There's even a greater problem now than there was for Adam in chapter two. The blessing of God that flows out to the world and brings life is the good news of Jesus' death for sin and resurrection for new life. And the promise is that all who drink of this living water that Jesus gives will have their sins forgiven and will be restored to God's presence to be with him forever. And Jesus has now tasked his church with bearing witness to all that he's accomplished. All that he's accomplished on our behalf, God has tasked his people to bear witness to the ends of the earth. So God has poured out his life-giving spirit upon his church for the purpose of empowering us as his witnesses to the ends of the earth. So then what does it mean for the church to take dominion of the earth? Sometimes we might be tempted to think it in militaristic terms, right? One army subdues the other's army. But in Genesis, we're just talking about gardening, aren't we? This is what a farmer does with his fields. That's dominion. It's described as bringing life and fruitfulness into an empty wilderness. How often does the New Testament speak in these terms to describe the work of the church? What are we doing? We're, we're planting, we're watering, we're bearing fruit, and we're reaping a harvest. So just as, as the garden was to be this special place that first just received, right? The river, the river came here first, and then mediated that life-giving blessing of God to the world. So also God has poured his spirit upon his people, the church, in order that we might be the means of God's blessing going out 
through the proclamation of the gospel to the very ends of the earth. <coughs> this then is how we ought to understand our work of evangelism and discipleship. So if you're a Christian, like Adam in the garden that God planted, so God has placed you in this church where, first of all, we just get to receive, don't we? We just, we just get to enjoy the life-giving blessings that, that we didn't work for, but God has just done for us just because he loves us. He's caring for our needs, isn't he? He's feeding us. So Christian, don't, don't go live alone in the wilderness when God has planted a garden for you to live in and flourish in. But secondly, everything that God has done for you, Christian, from creating you to redeeming you, has been for a purpose. We've been tasked with bringing the, the life-giving water of God that we ourselves have received out into the dusty deserts of this world so that as, as other people might drink from this river of life, that God might bring them to new spiritual life, that dead hearts might come alive through faith in Jesus. This is God's purpose from the very beginning. And as we see in Revelation 22, none of God's purposes are gonna fail, are they? Church, we've been given a purpose to fulfill. We've been given a pattern to follow. He's shown us how to do it, hasn't he? And he's given us the power that we need to be able to complete it. And so we, we work to bring life and blessing of God in the gospel to all peoples in the hopes that one day the whole earth will be filled with the glory of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, we do thank you that you have made us in your image and that you've given us a job. You've tasked us to imitate you, to do what we've seen you do. Lord, we pray that you would help us to set about the work that you have given, proclaiming your gospel, that we might take dominion by making disciples. Lord, would you be pleased to cause many in this community to drink from your river of life. Lord, we long for the day when all of your purposes for creation are fulfilled, when Ezekiel's vision comes to pass, and we are brought into your presence to dwell with you forever. Lord, we ask that it might be soon. In Jesus' name, amen.